Welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Sarah. And I'm Ben. Thank you for listening to us today. Thank you so much for listening to us as we all continue to do our best in this... uh, Social distancing world. Long collective nightmare. How are you doing, Sarah? Ooh. Yeah. Yeah. So... Ben, you've talked about your mental health things in the past. Yes, I've talked, I think, on the show pretty openly about, like, going to therapy and getting on medication and that sort of stuff. So I'm going to share some stuff from me, because I I know that when you spoke about your struggles, it helped a lot of people. Mm -hmm. So today and yesterday, I had panic attacks about germs. I'm not diagnosed as OCD, I do have tendencies that lean that way, hence the panic attacks. I do have depression and anxiety and medication for those things, but the OCD-esque things have kind of been shuffled off as I deal with my depression and anxiety with Mm -hmm. my therapist. Um, But since this whole pandemic stuff, it's been very hard to try to keep my urge to cleanliness in check and I thought I should share that because while not everyone would deal with these same types of struggles I think hearing that people are struggling is helpful knowing that you're not the only one who's like pulling out your hair yeah social distancing is difficult on everybody but it super sucks if you're someone who has like a cleanliness fixation or you're someone who has like agoraphobia where like these are mental health issues that you've maybe been dealing with for some time and finding ways to manage or mitigate. And suddenly all the message you're getting is instead like promoting those fixations and fears. Yes. Um, that's exactly it. And one thing that when I, I talk about this with my therapist, um, who you're seeing over video chats. Yeah. Which is quite interesting an experience, but in any case, He is very encouraging of, like, not despairing, um, and the ways of finding hope is in the way that everyone is kind of going through this experience. While physically separate, um, it's still kind of a communal experience. And sometimes, you know, those little things of, like, everyone bonding over Zoom meetings being awful, Mm -hmm. um... While that's very, like, a small, like, smile in the face of everything, it's still something. Um, and I hope that this podcast can be a bit of that small something. Because who boy? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, if, uh, if we're doing a little bit to, like, help you get through the day by, like, putting some different kind of background noise in your life from... Other stuff, um, that's really nice. Um, and we would actually love to hear from you if you are also struggling, you know, bonding over all of that. So you can reach us through email screamscenepodcast at gmail.com. We've had past listeners do that, and we've had some very awesome conversations that way. Um, but of course, also 
over Twitter is fine if you're wanting to have it be public like that, at underscore scream scene. Yeah, I think a lot of our listeners share a lot of things in common. And, you know, there's a we have this, like, community of listeners, but I don't know how much they, like, reach out to each other rather than just at us. And I think everyone reaching out to each other is um, maybe something that would be nice for everybody. Yeah. Now to shift from talking about mental health and germs into science fiction, I guess. Ben, what are we watching today? Yeah, so today's a big, I think, turning point for the show. Okay. Because the era of universal-style horror movies is over. If there's stuff like that to come, it is either, like, you know, past its best before date or parodies, Mm -hmm. or, like, stuff that sort of remixes and pushes those kind of movies forward into a new style, like Hammer Horror. We are now in the 1950s. Specifically, we're in the year 1951. Um, It's been a while since a major horror release happened. Um, You know, we've seen Yatsia Kaiden, but that was in Japan. And we've seen Queen of Spades, but that was in Britain, and it was also kind of, like, kind of respectable, (laughs) Um, Sure, I know what you mean. You had stuff like The Creeper or Scared to Death that was like real Z-movie schlock schlock stuff that no one's paying attention to. Like the last, you know, actual Hollywood studio doing a horror movie kind of stuff was really in like 1946 at this point. And here we are in 51 with a new A-picture horror movie from RKO. I didn't know this was a picture. Mm-hmm. That's exciting. Wow. Yep. It's The Thing from Another World from 1951, directed by Christian Nyby. All right. I feel like there's a lot of stuff for you to talk about in terms of the background of this movie, both in how this movie is an A picture, because with a title like that, you wouldn't expect it, and also your directed inflection makes me very curious. Yeah, the also the way I read the title out is narratively motivated. I feel like, though, you have to be saying this like, the thing from another world. Right. Um, it's certainly like <laughs> one of those kinds of movies in a way. Absolutely. But really, when you think of your, in your head, of like schlocky 1950s drive-in B sci-fi monster movies, like this is the movie those movies are ripping off. Like, this is the Frankenstein to those movies, um, like, The Mad Monster. Absolutely. Cool. Now, we've kind of already touched on it a little bit, but this movie also sees science fiction interact with horror for the first time in a very major way. We've had the mad scientist as a trope for a long time in horror and had those science fiction elements of like, oh, glands or whatever, (laughs) as kind of like the root explanation of everything. Um, But like traditional sci-fi with aliens and outer space and ray guns and, you know, um, flying saucers and men from Mars... That's been another thing, and it also hasn't been very prominent in film. Uh, It's been, you know, here and there, stuff like Metropolis by Fritz Lang from the 1920s, uh, stuff like the Flash Gordon serials of the 1930s from Universal, which were budgeted very highly and, like, highly promoted. Um, 
more schlocky serials. Like, sci-fi generally was a schlocky Saturday morning serial genre. It's for kids. Yeah. It's pulp stories, comic books, it's for kids, who cares? Um, But then a shift happens. Yeah. The, you know, comic books absolutely. And yeah, uh, pulp magazines is it's, I feel like that is the home territory of sci-fi in like the 30s and 40s. It's also probably the one place where sci-fi is being written on an adult level, even if reading kind of those magazines is not like, is sort of associated with a certain like kind of person. It has kind of a, um, you you look down on people who read sci-fi pulp magazines, right? It, it has a, a negative connotation. Yeah, that implies that you're childish. But those stories were being written in those magazines at an adult level. So I think a good place to start on our journey to understand the background of this movie is in the sci-fi pulp magazines. Absolutely. Let me take you there. I'm not going to start at the beginning of pulp magazines and, and stuff. They really start in Penny Dreadfuls, which we've even talked about in the past. Yeah, so. you're not going to go back and talk about Hugo Gernsback or whatever? No, no, yeah. no, no. We're going to start our story here in 1910 when a John Wood Campbell Jr. was born. Mm, yeah. In uh, New Jersey. Yeah. He grew up with an electrical engineer for a father and a stay-at-home mother. Notably, um, his mother had a twin sister, and as a child, he couldn't tell the two apart. Yeah. So he'd go to his aunt and be like, Mommy! And she apparently didn't like him. Oh. And, yeah, so he was constantly, like, getting rebuffed by someone who he thought was his mom. Right. To follow in his father's footsteps, Campbell attended MIT and tried to do the engineer route, but he failed to graduate because he didn't want to learn German. <laughs> he headed to Duke University and earned a Bachelor of Science in Physics in 1932. So he started writing and publishing science fiction stories when he was 18, when he first started going to MIT. Um, a lot of his stories around that time were very, like, space adventure, mm-hmm. Flash Gordon-y type of stories. And when he shifted to kind of a different tone that was less of a, uh, almost like a swashbuckling astronaut and more to a... Um, From like what's generally considered um, interplanetary romance to like more hard sci-fi. There we go. Those are the words. Mm-hmm. When he shifted to that uh, hard sci-fi tone, he started writing under the pseudonym Don A. Stewart, which is a name derived from his mother's maiden name. And he started this in 1934. Some of his most notable works as Stewart was Twilight in 1934. Not to be confused with Stephanie Meyer's uh, <laughs> vampire romance. Yeah. Night in 1935. And Who Goes There? A novella in 1938, of which this film is adapted from. Mm-hmm. And he wrote that at 28 years old. Yeah. Uh, the like, most significant and important parts of Campbell's career, like, aren't even, haven't even happened yet. Yeah. So this vocation continued after he became the editor of Astounding Science Fiction, a uh, journal, in 1937. I don't know if it was, like, already the top title among the sci-fi pulp magazines, but it certainly became it. It it was pretty close to the top, um, and Campbell was hired to basically apprentice and then replace the head editor. Mm -hmm. 
As an editor, John Campbell became a significant influence on science fiction, its genre, and its writers, and he's kind of known for providing the stage for the people who would become sci-fi's biggest names. Mm -hmm. People like Isaac Asimov, Robert Heinlein, A.E. Van Voigt, Theodore Sturgeon, and many others. Yeah, well, I mean, as an editor, it was his call whether your story got accepted or not, so that meant he was the gatekeeper, and then also as the editor, he could demand changes of your story, so he could mold your voice as an author, and his magazine was the top magazine, so he got to basically mold what science fiction was. Yeah, He's credited by um, modern author Daryl Schweitzer for making science fiction writers, quote, pull themselves up out of the pulp mine and start writing intelligently for adults. Mm-hmm, yeah. And Isaac Asimov said of Campbell that he, quote, demanded science fiction writers to understand science and understand people. Yes. So you can see that shift from, like, zany, like, ray gun, pew pew, to writing adult-oriented science fiction, hard science stories. Yeah, you you don't get to, like... Star Trek. Yeah, you don't get to Star Trek. You don't get to iRobot. You don't get to the, uh, you know, Fahrenheit 451. Uh, You don't get to Starship Troopers or, or, you know, uh, Stranger in a Strange Land, any of that, without John Campbell. This emphasis on um, character motivations and reactions can actually be seen in his novella, Who Goes There?, really in the paranoia of his characters. Now, Who Goes There was the last big fiction that he would write at 28, um, as the year after is when he shifted to the editor role and kind of left his writing behind. Mm -hmm. So the plot of Who Goes There. There's a team of scientific researchers in Antarctica, and they find a crashed UFO that has been buried in the ice for 20 million years. They try to thaw the ship with some explosives, but they end up destroying it. But they do end up rescuing a frozen pilot. Thawing the pilot revives the alien, and it turns out this alien can assume memories, the shape and personality of whatever it devours. Mm -hmm. Unknowingly uh, to the rest of the research team, the alien has killed and impersonated um, their team member, Conant, Uh, who is the team's physicist. With the leftover mass of the creature, um, that part becomes a sled dog. The dog is discovered as an alien and destroyed. Blair, who is one of the team members who recommended that we should thaw this pilot and see what's going on, um, starts being overcome with paranoia and guilt because this alien, if he escapes to civilization is going to just destroy the human race. So he starts going mad and vows to kill everyone just to keep things safe. So he gets isolated alone in a cabin. There's a rule of four instituted where every everyone needs to be in groups of four. Kind of like the buddy system, but with four people. The team does recognize, though, that they're isolated and they can't have anyone coming in because then there's a chance that the alien could get out. So they sabotage their own vehicles, and they keep basically, like, everything's fine on the radio to to the outside world, so no one sends a rescue team. And they start to try to narrow who has been replaced by this alien. It turns out that the alien is telepathic and can read and project thoughts, which makes this uh, 
investigation very difficult. They do try to create a serum from some animals to try to protect them from being uh, basically the alien transforming into them. Um, but the dog they are testing on has alien DNA, um, and so it ruins the tests. And as a precaution, all of the other animals are destroyed. Paranoia abounds at the research group as no one is sure who is human or not. Um, a character, one of the research team is named Kinner, and he gets murdered um, due to this paranoia, but he's revealed as an alien. Then we have um, our main sort of character, McCready, who uses a hot wire to test blood, because they realize that even though the alien can kind of separate into different parts, it'll still react to pain. Yeah, every part of it is still alive because it's a shapeshifter, right? So the yeah. blood isn't really blood, it's still the alien. Yeah. So they test the blood, um, and 14 of their group is revealed as the alien. They are all destroyed. As McCready and two survivors head to go check up on Blair, who has been in isolation this whole time, they see an albatross fly ahead, and they shoot it down to prevent the alien from being able to absorb it and turn into it. And that's notable because of stuff around albatrosses. Yeah, 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 for sure. Symbolism. <laughs> they get to Blair. Turns out he was an alien all along and had been shape-shifting to leave the cabin and start doing some prep work. McCready uh, systematically forces the Blair alien into the snow and destroys him with a blowtorch. And they discover that the alien during this prep time had been creating an atomic-powered anti-gravity device in order to get to civilization. And that's the end. So, um, because it's kind of confusing how big the team is with that synopsis, there's 37 people in the research team. 16 are named. Mm -hmm. A total of 15 people were eventually replaced by the alien, which means that there are 12 survivors at the end. So its very first adaptation is this 1951 film, yes. actually. Um, it was adapted in into comics in Argentina, which is sweet, in 1959. And then the other notable adaptation I want to mention is in 1958, it was adapted by Campbell himself for his radio program Exploring Tomorrow under the title The Escape. Hmm. John W. Campbell, um, as we've mentioned, had a huge influence on the industry, the genre, and helping develop these burgeoning sci-fi writers. Um, but as Ben said, he was a gatekeeper. And as a gatekeeper, that meant that his views helped influence the genre itself. Mm -hmm. um, so Campbell apparently enjoyed taking the devil's advocate position, in many discussions, including yes. why segregation was maybe actually a good thing. Mm -hmm. um, because his argument is that um, the slaves were in better living conditions than they would be in Africa, which is like, whoo boy, buddy. Um, but also that slavery probably would have ended anyways because of mechanization. Yeah, Campbell was a firm believer in like, the march of progress view of history mm -hmm. where like history is a linear development from less advanced to more advanced civilizations. So which was a common idea. Oh yeah, absolutely. But that's what sort of informs his idea of like, well, 
necessarily their living conditions in Africa were worse then, because it was a quote-unquote less evolved civilization. And it would have ended because of mechanization, because in Campbell's view of history, mechanization was inevitable, right? Yeah. Like, it's a very... It's a way to justify, oh, we're more advanced because we have shoes. Right, yeah. It's, like... it's, it's a viewpoint of history that's really easy to fall into when you're looking back at it, um, but is also traditionally been used to justify, like, colonialism. Yeah. Because the idea becomes, well, we're uplifting these people. Um, so he, with that and, like, other instances, was racist, he was sexist, um, not just, oh, it's the time period, it's like, no, like, that's not excusable. Well, and, and people noticed at the time, too. Yeah. Um, um funny enough, uh, his friendship with Asimov was broken off because Asimov was, um, Put off by Campbell's belief in pseudoscience. Yeah, Campbell eventually kind of fell into, uh, you know, Scientology. Yeah. Like, there's a, you know, when people make fun of L. Ron Hubbard, the founder of Scientology, they'll usually mention, like, this guy wrote sci fi and pulp magazines, like, as a way to, like, discredit him. And it's like, guess who decided to get L. Ron Hubbard his start writing sci fi and pulp magazines? Yeah. So, um, he's not, uh, John Campbell, that is, he, he's not all good. He had, um, a lot of influence, um, but he's a, an example of how someone who acts as a gatekeeper and acts as a huge influence can negatively affect things. Yeah, because you can have an outside influence, right? Because his influence rolls into influencing everyone he mentored. And the thing about Campbell is he had such a big influence that, like, the overall sci-fi community was very um, much kind of in favor of glorifying him for a long time. Which I can understand that impulse. Yeah. And so a lot of this more unpleasant stuff got swept under the rug for a very long time. And it's no longer kind of acceptable to, I guess, like, lionize him on the one hand without mentioning these other things. And, you know, the thing about when I talk about his influence on the genre, like... When I talk about it rippling out, like, it affected a lot of things, you know, because where his, like, racism and sexism was, like, coming from in a lot of ways was he was very much, like, I don't know what you would call it, like, a chauvinist in many ways, in the sense of he believed in, like, you know, male exceptionalism, specifically American male exceptionalism, which, in terms of the way he edited science fiction, also usually came out as human exceptionalism. So in Campbell's stories, where humans were part of, you know, intergalactic federations like Star Trek, humans always had, like, some quality that gave them the edge over aliens. Like, they weren't maybe the fastest or the strongest or the smartest, but they had, like, intuition or moxie or, like, invention or something that made them, like, the best of any intergalactic setting. Yeah, and you can see that influence even into Star Trek. Yeah, and Asimov, for instance, was so put off by that, he thought it was such a ridiculous idea to insist upon, that he got into arguments with Campbell about it all the time, which is why when you look at Asimov's, like, most developed body of work, which is the Robots Empire Foundation series... That is set in a galaxy where there is no advanced life other than humanity. 
And that was because Asimov decided to just stop putting aliens in his stories because he hated having that argument over and over again. Mm -hmm. So that's sort of an example of the way that his views kind of ripple out. And that's just his view on, like, humans have to be the best. Now think about the way that, you know, someone who thinks whites are inherently superior to blacks or men are inherently superior to women, the way that can ripple out then into all of sci-fi. Now, alien ships came out of those science fiction magazines and into the real world, uh, at least first documented on June 24th, 1947, with the Kenneth Arnold UFO sighting. Mm -hmm. In Washington State, the private pilot Kenneth Arnold saw a string of shiny UFOs, as in unidentified flying objects, uh, flying near Mount Rainier at high speeds. And the reason why this is notable is because this was the first time that the idea of or the description of flying saucers and flying discs was used in newspapers populated to a huge range of readers outside pulp magazines. Yeah, the the flying saucer description as like a catch-all term for UFOs kind of comes from Kenneth Arnold. Yeah. So Arnold's sightings were corroborated by um, a nearby prospector using a telescope, because this was picked up in the newspapers across the country, others started writing into the newspapers to share sightings in and around June and July. Mm -hmm. um, there are photos of flashes in the sky from July 12th, 1947, near Mount Rainier, um, but that's about the only, uh, I guess you could say, physical evidence of it. Yeah. The next UFO-related <laughs> incident is Roswell on July 8th, 1947. So, like... A month later, less than. Yeah. Let me explain what Roswell is, actually. Yeah, this is sort of a can of worms, because definitely yeah. there's a lot of, like, it was, no, it wasn't. Yes, it was, no, it wasn't. So near Roswell, New Mexico, apparently a UFO crashed, and it was quickly responded to by the military and covered up as, uh, it was a weather balloon. Mm -hmm. That's the conspiracy theory. Other theories are, include the recovery of alien bodies, alive aliens, and, uh, of course, the military cover-up. And there's even the conspiracy of the retrieval of little orange men with giant ears from the distant future. The, I, the thing about Roswell <laughs> is... That's a Deep Space Nine joke. Oh, I didn't realize that. I'm sorry. <laughs> That's why I specified little orange men. Ah, but yes, continue with what you were saying. Oh, I was just going to say that the thing about Roswell that lended itself so well to becoming, like, mythologized over the last half century is that, like, the press response from the U.S. Air Force was, like, very confused in the days immediately afterwards. Yeah. Um, now, we at Scream Scene will have no opinion here nor there. Um, there has been a ton of research done on investigations of Broadswell. So if you want to learn more, check them out. We're not going to go into detail. Yeah, I mean, I do feel like I need to state in briefly my position because... Of Roswell I, or of aliens? Of Roswell. Okay. Because, like, I just don't feel comfortable playing into the Roswell industry of, like, <laughs> fucking okay, we'll pseudoscience. Talk. Yeah, yeah. So from my understanding of the case, from what I've looked into... Um, the truth, I believe, was that the thing that crashed was, like, an experimental U.S. Air Force, like, spy balloon. 
So when it first crashed and people were like, oh, a UFO, the Air Force's first impulse was, yeah, just let them call it a UFO. Let them call it a flying saucer. They won't figure out it's a spy plane. None of our confidential shit will get out. And then people started freaking out that it was a flying saucer and started getting over the top about it and like scared and like alarmed. And the USAF was like, oh shit, oops. So then they came out after originally saying, yeah, it's a flying saucer. They changed their story to, no, it was just a simple weather balloon, which then like didn't fit with like the stuff that was found at the crash site, which then spiraled off into, they must be covering up that it's a real UFO and, you know, it's this government conspiracy, when what they were really covering up was, like, their own shit. And a lot of, like, as the years went on, UFO sightings were a lot of cases of the Air Force covering up, like, its own experimental aircraft tests. Yes, because there was a thing called the Cold War going on. Sightings, etc., all occurred again throughout 47 to 51 and onward, the most recent of which in 2015. Yeah. But the last one to happen in and around the release of this movie is in on August 25th, 1951, a group of students saw lights above Lubbock, Texas, mm-hmm. and this became known as the Lubbock Lights. Mm-hmm. Uh, one newspaper described them as flying what's-its. <laughs> And the, these lights were in kind of like a, a wide V or semicircle of lights flying at high speed, which I I think has been confirmed to have been, like now in the future, like the year of our Lord 2020, that was a spy plane. Yeah, like a lot of what you were dealing with was like aircraft that were designed not to be seen, but like you're seeing... And not seeing, be heard as well. And not be heard, but then you're seeing like their, their running lights or reflections. Now you might wonder... Well, like, why why haven't we seen much of, like, these types of UFO sightings or anything like that before 1947? And why suddenly all of them? Right. Like, so quickly right after. Yeah. It has to be more than just, like, hysteria, people calling in, like, I saw them too, type of thing. And it's likely because of the Cold War. Yeah. Now... I'll go into detail about what the Cold War is right now, but the way that this links to UFOs is you're worried about what the enemy has for their technological advances, so you are being incredibly secret about the unique, advanced R&D projects that you are working on. So you even cover it up to your own people. Yeah, a lot of this was like the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing kind of problems. Absolutely. So, when I think the Cold War and the feeling of paranoia that kind of arises from it, I really think the 60s onward. Mm. But that's not the case. The Cold War actually started only, like, a few years. You could even maybe make the argument a few months after World War II ended. World War II basically, like, rearranged the, like, power structure of the world. And when you came out of it, like... No one in Europe was really a world power anymore because they'd all gotten their asses kicked to such a degree that, like, they just couldn't do it anymore. Like, the British Empire quickly collapsed, for instance. And what you were left with was two big world superpowers, which were the U.S., which basically suffered minimal damage, and the Soviet Union, which suffered a lot of damage but was very, very big and had a lot of military might and were basically the country that won World War II. So you suddenly had these guys who were allies, but now they're, like, looking across the table at each other with a whole world that's now kind of free for the taking. Yeah. Even 
during the war, the alliance between the Allied powers was a little uneasy, especially with, like, Roosevelt and later Truman not really trusting Stalin at all. Yeah, given that he was a piece of shit. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But, I mean, Churchill was a piece of shit, too, you know? Churchill wasn't, like, a uh, starve out millions of your people and send them to the gulag piece of shit. Mm -hmm. He did... uh, have a huge, like, issue of starvation in India under him. Okay, yes, so fair. Church, like, yes. I, I just feel like, like, we all know all world leaders have a degree of shittiness. Some mm-hmm. are shittier than others, but yeah. they all are a little shitty. Fair. Um, that's all I'm saying. Yeah. There's also the, like, communism being kind of the natural enemy of capitalism thing going yes. on. As... World War II uh, was coming to a close, and during um, the Potsdam Conference in 1945, where the Allied forces were kind of coming together over a table and being like, okay, what do we do now that the war is done? Um, Stalin was working to establish an Eastern Bloc of basically pro-Soviet states that weren't really part of the Soviet Union, but they're called satellite states. Like, they might as well be part of the Soviet Union. They're puppet nations. Exactly. And this is, like, Eastern European and Iran is in there, too. Um, And these are basically forming a buffer between Germany and the rest of Europe and the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. These efforts help contribute to a strained relationship between the Allied forces, um, as they discussed the future of Germany post-war. Yeah, it was basically, you know, the Soviets pushed from their territory into Berlin to, like, stop the war. Mm -hmm. And then when they stopped, they were like, cool, well, we've made it this far, so everything behind us is still ours. Yeah. Finders keepers. Right. It was in Winston Churchill's 1946 Iron Curtain speech that the phrase Iron Curtain, which had been in use... Um, since, like, 1939 and earlier, uh, was applied to the Soviet sphere of influence in Europe. Mm-hmm. And a year later, um, journalist Bernard Baruch would coin the term Cold War in 1947 to describe the tension between, basically, Western powers, a.k.a. the U.S., and the Soviet Union, and that this war was fought through coalitions economic tensions, proxy wars, nuclear arms race, and other kind of technological races, and propaganda. Mm -hmm. Um, As Ben kind of mentioned, there's a lot of baggage to this tension between the states and the Soviet Union. Um, Capitalism versus communism, democracy versus dictatorship. There's a lot of baggage to justify why... We are correct in this point in time. Yeah. Now, while there were real incidents signaling this tension, including the Korean War as a proxy war, the Berlin blockade, there was also the propaganda machine on both sides churning away. Mm -hmm. So there was a lot of stuff going on in each country's home bases um, to basically prep you to consider them the enemy um, before and during these incidents. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And and building up kind of an exaggerated view of each country in the eyes of the other. Yeah. In the U.S., um, kind of notable uh, is the same year that The Thing from Another World was released is the year that the 
um, educational film slash sort of propaganda film, Duck and Cover, was released. Yes, Duck and Cover. Be sure and remember what Bert the Turtle just did, friends, because every one of us must remember to do the same thing. That's what this film is all about. Duck and cover. And the reason I, I add the educational thing is because some people are like, it wasn't propaganda, it was teaching people what to do in the case of a nuclear attack. It was shown like, in schools. It was shown in schools, well, because it's educational, and I'm sitting here going, yes, it can also be propaganda, guys. This is an official civil defense film produced in cooperation with the Federal Civil Defense Administration and in consultation with the Safety Commission of the National Education Association. Education is usually telling you true things that you can use, hopefully, ideally, whereas ducking and covering under your desk when a nuke is dropped on your city is... Yeah. What else are you going to do? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, It at least gives you something to do. The point of duck and cover wasn't to give people helpful advice. It was to give people, yeah, exactly, something to do to feel like they weren't just completely helpless. Yeah. Part of the reason why Duck and Cover came out in 1951 is, let me rewind the clock a little bit. It's the Potsdam Conference. Mm -hmm. Um, During the conference is when the atomic bombs were dropped on Japan. Yes. And Truman is turning to Stalin saying, like, we have an exciting weapon. It's very powerful. And Stalin, who is spies in the Manhattan Project, is like, hmm, I wonder what that weapon is. Mm Mm-hmm. Bombs are dropped on Japan. Now it's out to the world what the U.S. has been working on. And um, I believe it's 1949, the Soviet Union has their atomic bomb. Yeah. So now the U.S. doesn't have, like, the monopoly on the most dangerous weapon Mm -hmm. ever known to man. And suddenly now you're having to increase that. So there's that nuclear arms race and the work towards a hydrogen bomb mm-hmm. and, and further and further. And then, of course, you have um, the push for better rockets that can do further distance because, you know, the U.S. and Soviet Union are kind of on the opposite sides of the world. So how do you get over there? Yeah, and, and you have... This is brinksmanship. Yes. The idea of, like, needing to constantly match or slightly exceed what your enemy is doing, Mm -hmm. back and forth, back and forth. Which, you know, does accelerate technological development that is, like, related to war industries. Yes. So, you know, everything in the world has a trade-off, basically, is what I'm saying here. Yeah. Like, on the one hand, we wouldn't have made it to the moon, we as in, like, the U.S., not us as in Canada. Yeah. But on the other hand... Boy, well, and like was a, the Cuban Missile Crisis worth it? Yeah, like you had a whole generation of people who grew up under the assumption that the world was going to end at any moment. Yes. Um, and that assumption trickles into culture. Yeah. Um, now, the earliest uh, piece of culture, I guess you could say, um, in terms of like the Cold War, is the um, novel Atomsk which was published in 1949. It was written by Paul Leinbarger, 
um, an American novelist. It's the very first espionage novel that deals with U.S. versus Soviet Union. Um, and then, of course, we see a big move into cinema. It's not explicitly propaganda in the sense of, like, this was funded by the government. Um, but it's definitely, like, mid to late 50s, a huge push for that invasion theme. We've talked about invasion literature in the past, I think in the Dracula episodes. Yes. Um, but, I mean, like, you could also just look at War of the Worlds yeah. as, like, the piece of invasion literature. And guess what? There's a War of the Worlds feature film adaptation in 1953. Dope! I wonder if that's thematic in any sort of way. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, so that's the environment that the thing from another world is coming out into. A completely different world than when we were last covering a horror movie in the U.S. Yeah, and like, you know, we've touched upon, when we talk about people's careers on the show, we've touched upon HUAC a lot, the House Un-American Activities Committee, and the fact that, like, large swaths of Hollywood were, like, blacklisted for communist sympathies. And the thing to kind of remember is what put people in a lot of dire straits was the fact that before World War II and during World War II, having communist sympathies wasn't, like, a career-ending thing. It still made you unpopular in certain circles, like being in a union made you unpopular in certain circles, but, like, the communists were our allies, so, like, it wasn't going to get you shut out of anything. And you had a lot of people who, therefore, like, didn't see these memberships as a problem, and suddenly they were. Or had memberships in organizations, like, in college that they didn't have anymore, but were now, like, retroactively damning. So that was a huge problem. There was also, you know, in terms of the propaganda... Uh, a lot made of, like, the idea of espionage and spies and, like, sleeper agents and all of these things. And this idea that, you know, because people had joined communist groups in the 30s, that meant that, like, there could be communists anywhere in the United States at any time. And, like, they've infiltrated Hollywood, so they're getting their communist propaganda out into, like, our movies and our culture. And they're reprogramming your kids and blah, blah, blah. And that created a very high atmosphere of paranoia. Yes, Perfectly suitable for the paranoia that those Antarctic researchers felt. Mm -hmm. Well, Sarah. Um, that was a lot. Yes. <laughs> so you brought up that it's been a while since we've seen, like, a American studio horror picture. Yeah. And so one thing that we do have to address at this time is there's been a number of revisions to the production code. Oh, okay. Not a large, large number, but enough that, like, we it should address them. What year was the code updated itself? So there's uh, a number of minor updates that happened throughout the 1940s, some of which we've covered on the show before, some of which I didn't cover until now because they weren't really important until I had en enough of them to remark upon. But the main revision to the code that I'm going to be talking about today took effect on March 27th, 1951, a month before this movie came out. Okay. So this movie would have been made without these revisions, but would have still needed to follow these revisions when it was released to get a seal. And not all of these are going to have, like, anything to do with this movie. Um, or maybe even horror movies, but who knows. So the production code's preamble was uh, rewritten. Uh, not really a much of a change, just a lot of, like, Specific numbers and facts quoted changed to reflect the new post-vertical integration environment of Hollywood. Now that the system where studios made 
distributed and exhibited films has been broken up into a system where like those need to be you know two out of three of those things at most yeah. right so the preamble's been rewritten to express that section 1.3 in the crimes against the law section of the code um point 3 used to read illegal drug traffic must never be presented that was changed on September 11th 1946 to the illegal drug traffic must not be portrayed in such a way as to stimulate curiosity concerning the use of or traffic in such drugs, nor shall scenes be approved which show the use of illegal drugs or their effects in detail. That's because of film noir. Yeah, basically applying the, like, murder rule, where it's like, you can have it, you just can't show it or make it look cool. <laughs> On March 27th, 1951, however, this was edited again to... Illegal drug traffic must never be presented. They were like, film noir has had enough. Let's reel this back. Yeah. Someone had a bit too much fun. <laughs> Ruined it for everybody else. Um, in section two on sex, point seven, the line used to read, sex hygiene and venereal diseases are not proper subjects for theatrical motion pictures. On March 27th, 1951... This was revised to abortion, sex hygiene, and venereal diseases are not proper subjects for theatrical motion pictures. Mm. Yeah, the 50s are when um, contentions of abortion come into a little bit more of a broad daylight mainstream discussion. Mm. Later on, in the special regulations on crime in motion pictures section, uh, point five has been edited. This used to say, suicide, as a solution of problems occurring in the development of screen drama, is to be discouraged as morally, as morally questionable and as bad theater, unless absolutely necessary for the development of the plot. On March 27, 1951, this was edited to, suicide, as a solution of problems occurring in the development of screen drama, is to be discouraged as morally questionable and as bad theater, unless absolutely necessary for the development of the plot. It should never be justified or glorified or used to defeat the due process of law. Oh, that's so... That's, again, a film noir. Yeah. Um, I mean, Val Luton's um, Seventh Victim, I yeah. think, also kind of gets around it. Yeah, you can't kill yourself to get out of, like, a jail sentence. Yeah, you have to go to jail. In the same section, point 10 used to read... There must be no scenes at any time showing law enforcement officers dying at the hands of criminals. This includes private detectives and guards for banks, motor trucks, etc. You remember that one? Yeah. On March 27, 1951, this was changed to, There must be no scenes at any time showing law enforcing officers dying at the hands of criminals unless such scenes are absolutely necessary to the development of the plot. This includes private detectives and guards for banks, motor trucks, etc. A lot of these are clearly the result of film noir and having to, like, sort of backing down on fights that the Code was probably having over and over again and putting in a little bit more leeway. Which is surprising, because I always think of the production Code as being, like, you know, uncompromising people with sticks up their butt. We're going to see it get chipped away at more and more through the 1950s, largely as, like, filmmakers and studios start becoming more adventurous in their content. And also deciding that since they didn't own the theater chains anymore, they didn't really need to be listening 
as hard. Sure. So that's interesting context. Um, like you said, I, I, I don't know if we'll see any impact on horror, because it does seem to be mainly with film noir, which continues mm-hmm. through the 50s, um, because horror def- definitely shifts towards a science fiction mix rather than the <laughs> melodramatic drama mix we've been seeing. Yeah. But it's good to know. So, getting to the thing from another world specifically, Mm -hmm. the primary driving force behind this film was its producer, Howard Hawks. Born in 1896 in Indiana to a family of wealthy industrialists, his family moved to California for the sake of his mother's health. Hawks attended private schools, played tennis, and studied mechanical engineering. In 1916, he became friends with cinematographer and fellow gearhead Victor Fleming, who later became a director himself. Fleming got Hawks a job as a prop boy on a Douglas Fairbanks picture, and during the shooting of that picture, um, the set designer was sick one day, and they needed to redo one of the sets because Fairbanks wasn't happy with it, and Hawks just did it on the spot for him, and so he kind of like rose up the ranks. And he continued to rise up the ranks finding regular work uh, throughout that period of the 1910s. When World War I broke out, he was trained as a pilot, became a squadron commander, and then later a flight instructor. He became a director at age 21 when the director of a Mary Pickford movie didn't show up for work one day, and Hawks just offered to do it himself on the spot. (laughs) Those are the days you could pull that shit. His filmmaking career really took off when his wealthy family loaned money to Jack Warner, which led to Hawks being given his own production unit at Warner Brothers. (laughs) He cultivated a group of friends uh, in L.A. that was primarily made up of macho, risk-taking outdoorsmen and pilots. You know, like Ernest Hemingway. (laughs) Over the course of the 1920s, he ended up doing work for Warner Brothers, Paramount, MGM, and Fox. His preference was to direct, but he usually produced his films as well, uh, in addition to performing uncredited rewrites on their scripts. By the end of the decade, he had resolved to always work as an independent producer-director and not be signed to long-term contracts with studios. Pulling a Don Draper. (laughs) Yeah, he founded his own independent production company, Winchester Pictures, which has a rifle in the logo because of Winchester Rifles, but the name actually comes from Howard Hawks' middle name, which is Winchester. But he would then, you know, be releasing the films through the big studios still. Yeah, probably United Artists. Um, everybody. Oh, dope. Yeah. Good for him. Hawks' first sound film, The Dawn Patrol, was a World War I aviation picture that was in production simultaneously with Howard Hughes' film, Hell's Angels. Oh, that's a good movie. Hughes did everything he could to sabotage Dawn Patrol, while Hawks made a habit of stealing aviation professionals and pilots from Hughes' film. (laughs) Eventually, things ended up in a lawsuit between the two films, which was dropped because over the course of the legal battle, the two men became friends. Of course. Hughes then hired Hawks to direct his gangster epic, Scarface, which became a huge hit despite of, or because of, the controversy the movie had with the Hayes office. That's also a good movie, and Boris Karloff has a little cameo in it before he's anyone. Yep. Howard Hawks began to develop recurring themes and elements in his movies. These include the Hawksian man, 
who is a character considered to be like a uh, kind of a man's man in some ways, but is really defined by his instinctive professionalism. Like whatever field he is in, he is just like naturally good at it and okay. professional. And then along with the Hoxian man comes the Hoxian woman, who is defined as a quick-witted, sexually independent, even match for any man. Another recurring theme in Hox's films is camaraderie and love between male friends. He basically invented, like, the buddy movie. Okay. Hox worked in all genres, uh, but he was particularly influential with screwball comedies like Bringing Up Baby in 1938 and His Girl Friday in 1940. Mm -hmm. In 1941, he received his only Best Director nomination for the film Sergeant York. That year, he also began shooting The Outlaw, starring Jane Russell for Howard Hughes. But Hughes's perfectionism ultimately saw Hughes take over the film from Hawks, which was not completed until 1943, and then due to battles with the Hayes office, was not released until 1946. That is not a good movie. Nope. In 1944, Howard Hawks made To Have and Have Not, telling Ernest Hemingway that he'd make a hit film out of Hemingway's worst book. <laughs> The film was the first to pair actors Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall, who fell in love for real on the set and married soon afterwards. Hawks would pair them again in the Raymond Chandler adaptation, The Big Sleep. In 1948, he directed the western Red River with John Wayne and Montgomery Clift. That film sort of was a turning point for Hawks towards working with Wayne and doing westerns uh, over and over. The Thing from Another World came in 1951. His biggest late career films included Gentlemen Prefer Blondes with Marilyn Monroe and Jane Russell in 1953, Rio Bravo with John Wayne in 1959, and Rio Lobo with John Wayne in 1970, which was Hawks' last film before he passed away in 1977. Howard Hawks' definition of a good film was three good scenes and no bad ones. And his definition of a good director was someone who doesn't annoy you. That sounds like a producer's attitude. <laughs> <laughs> the Thing from Another World was produced by Hawks' Winchester Pictures Production Company, their first in a deal for RKO after RKO had been taken over by Howard Hughes in 1948. Uh, as we talked about in, I think, our episode on Bedlam, uh, which was our last RKO film we looked at, the studio had encountered severe financial difficulties uh, with the downturn in attendance uh, for Hollywood films and was basically like in the red, which led to shareholder Howard Hughes buying up the controlling interest and taking over the company. Profits were down 90% when Hughes took over. Uh, their biggest star, Robert Mitchum, was arrested on marijuana possession <laughs> Sure. And it was assumed that that was going to be it for his career. He would be dropped. But Hughes surprised everybody by keeping him on. Hughes was also the first to acquiesce to the government's ruling that the major studios had to split up their vertically integrated businesses. Uh, without any legal battle at all, Hughes like voluntarily sold off the theater chain portion of RKO, uh, which was another step in the slow demise of the studio system. Now, why would Hughes do this, given his, like, normal, like, independent streak? Well, because he's also the owner of Hughes Aircraft and depends on government contracts. The film was originally just titled The Thing, but 
A novelty comedy song of the same name became a big hit in 1950. While I was walking down the beach one bright and sunny day, I saw a great big wooden box afloatin' in the bay. I pulled it in and opened it up, and much to my surprise, ooh, I discovered a right before my eyes. Ooh, I discovered a right before my eyes. So the title was extended. This late change is very evident in the way that the "From Another World" section is appended in small type under the thing in the posters and in the movie's credits. It's very clearly an afterthought. Sure. Due to the involvement of Howard Hawks, the thing was an A picture, budgeted at one point six million dollars. Hawks had been drawn to the story because of its theme of men alone working together against an outside force. As well as the chance to tie in with the rising UFO sightings and investigations by the U.S. Air Force, the film's script and adaptation was written by Charles Lederer. He's really good with those letters. It's with a D, but oh, Charles Lederer was born in 1910 in New York to a prominent Broadway family. His father was a theatrical producer and his mother an actress. However, when his parents separated. Charles and his sister were sent to live in California and be raised by their maternal aunt, actress Marion Davies. Now, Davies was the mistress of newspaper mogul William Randolph Hearst, and Charles Lederer grew up at Hearst's San Simeon Castle. And his first job at age thirteen was writing for Hearst newspapers. Lederer was a child prodigy and was admitted to like U of C Berkeley at age thirteen. So he really is good with those letters.、Mm-hmm. <laughs> he became friends with screenwriter Ben Hecht, and through Ben Hecht, he began writing films, befriending screenwriters Joseph and Herman Mankiewicz. Through his friendship with Lederer, Herman Mankiewicz was introduced to the world of Hearst and Davies at San Simeon. From there, Mankiewicz wrote the screenplay for Citizen Kane. Yeah, I thought that's where this was going. Proud of his accomplishment, Mankiewicz showed the script to his friend Charles Lederer. Deeply upset by the script's content, Lederer told Davies and Hearst about it, setting off the chain of events that、oh. would lead to Hearst blacklisting the film from advertising the movie in his papers and generally turning all of Hollywood against it, which would lead to the film's financial failure, which would lead to the turning of Hollywood against Orson Welles and the fall of RKO. Yeah, in the long term. Woof. This story gets crazier. Really. So meanwhile. Virginia Nicholson Wells, the first wife of Orson Wells and the mother of his eldest daughter, Chris, had divorced Orson in 1940 after learning of his affair with Mexican actress Dolores Del Rio. After divorcing Wells, she ended up falling in love with Charles Lederer and marrying him, and then moving in with him with her daughter Chris. <laughs> Who was now in the awkward position of being brought over to San Simeon by Charles and Virginia for visits with Davies and Hearst while being the daughter of Hearst's most hated enemy. Wow. Lederer ended up suing Wells for greater child support money, but upon actually meeting Wells, became great friends with him <laughs> because they were both intellectual child prodigy writers. Of course. 
So Wells and his second wife, Rita Hayworth, ended up moving in next door to (laughs) Charles and Virginia, and Wells would go between the two homes freely like they were all just one big happy family. Oh my god. Although he did have to keep away when Aunt Marion came to visit. Wow. Yeah. Letterer frequently worked with Ben Hecht, and the two often performed uncredited rewrites on each other's scripts, punching up each other's dialogue. For instance, Letterer contributed to the dialogue to Ben Hecht's 1931 screenplay, The Front Page. And Hecht contributed to Letterer's script for its 1940 remake, His Girl Friday, directed by Howard Hawks. <laughs> Letterer was a frequent Hawks collaborator, uh, but he also did like films on his own. Uh, or without Hawks, rather, uh, such as the screenplay for the Marlon Brando version of Mutiny on the Bounty, as well as the original 1960 version of Ocean's Eleven. Cool. For The Thing, Letterer greatly altered the original Campbell story, uh, basically keeping its basic premise and sort of the setup of his plot, but changing the cast from a group of scientists to a mixed group of scientists and military men, basically bringing the characters more in line with Hawks's style, as well as adding an anti-communist pro-Air Force theme, which was also more in line with Hawks's predilections. The nature of the alien, in particular, was changed from a shape-shifting alien to a humanoid, blood-sucking, plant-based life form, primarily for budgetary reasons. Sure, absolutely. One of the biggest controversies around the thing to this day is the question of who directed it. Okay. The credited director is Christian Nyby. Nyby was Hawks' go-to editor at the time, having worked with him on To Have and Have Not, The Big Sleep, and Red River, for which he was nominated for an Academy Award. So he would have been responsible for the re-editing of The Big Sleep with yes. the reshoots. Yes, as well as several re-edits of Red River, which went through different permutations, cutting it down in length and changing like the framing narrative and a bunch of other stuff before it arrived at its final form. Now, Nyby wanted to move on to becoming a director, and his mentor, Howard Hawks, wanted to help. So, he hired Nyby to direct The Thing, but... Hawks was on set supervising every day. This combination, in addition to the film having more of Hawks's trademarks than what would later become Nyby's, led to a lot of disputes over who really directed the movie. Uh, Hawks always denied that he directed the movie and gave full credit to Nyby. Although, Nyby was paid only $5,460 of RKO's $50,000 director's fee, and the rest of it was kept by Hawks. Hmm. Cast and crew give conflicting reports, which range from, like, you know, Hawks just being on the set giving occasional advice to Nyby to Hawks, like, full-on directing scenes. For his part, Christian Nyby said, quote, People say it was Hawks's style. Of course it was. This is a man I studied and wanted to be like. You certainly emulate and copy the master you're studying under, which I did. And if you're taking painting lessons from Rembrandt, you certainly don't take the brush out of the master's hands. So it was probably more of like an apprenticeship. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Where, like, Hawks will shoot the, like, this is a pivotal scene, this needs to be done right, but you can, like, 
watch and pay attention, and then you can shoot the next one, which is not as pivotal. Right. Or you still have to make a movie that will be good. Yeah. Or, you know, Nibi directing, but then Hawks coming in and being like, okay, I want to show you how to do this next take or whatever. The cast was largely made up of character actors and members of Hawks's sort of stable of actors. Um, these included reliable authority figure types like star Kenneth Toby, who was 34 when he appeared in this film, as well as Hawks's newest ingenue, Margaret Sheridan, who was 25 when she appeared in the film. Her career never really took off the way Hawks wanted it to, something which Hawks blamed on her decision to get married and have a child early on in life. That's rude mm -hmm. uh, of him. Yeah. In an unusual move for the time, none of the actors are credited in the film's opening credits. Oh. Only at the end. And even then, only about half the cast. Um, it's a very big cast, and like half of them go uncredited. Uh, one of the cast members was William Self, who would go on to a long career as a television producer. Uh, he developed The Twilight Zone oh. for CBS... Uh, where he also developed Peyton Place, the first uh, TV soap opera. And then when he became an executive producer at 20th Century Fox Television, he oversaw such series as Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, Lost in Space, Batman, The Green Hornet, and MASH. Damn. Over okay. The, over the course of his career, he would eventually rise to become vice president of 20th Century Fox. Period. Yeah. Wow. Some of the other uncredited notables in the cast include Paul Frees, George Fenneman, and James Arness. Paul Frees is best remembered today as a voice actor, whose credits are far too numerous to mention, other than to say from 1942 to 1986, he worked for every studio and had voice credits in nearly every animated production in that time frame. George Fenneman was a radio and television announcer who was Groucho Marx's sidekick on the quiz show You Bet Your Life and the narrator at the start of every episode of Dragnet. His work on... Bum, 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 bum. Right. He's the guy who says the names have been changed to protect the innocent. Yeah. The most famous member of the cast is also the most unrecognizable in it. And that's James Arness, who plays the titular thing under heavy makeup. Born in 1923, Arness was a World War II vet who came to Hollywood via hitchhiking. He was still a nobody when he made the thing, but he became a star with his role as Marshal Matt Dillon on the TV series Gunsmoke. Mm -hmm. The show was a continuation of a long-running popular radio western, and there were actually fan complaints when the radio cast wasn't asked to reprise their roles. They <laughs> There's a reason why you go into radio yeah, there or was, podcasting. You don't have a face for TV. <laughs> there was no way that the radio cast could physically reprise their roles in many cases. Now, Dylan was the lead role on Gunsmoke, and James Arness played him on the show for its entire run, which was from 1955 to 1975. Yeah. And then he played him in four continuation TV movies <laughs> in the 80s and 90s before passing away in 2011. 2011? Mm-hmm. Wow, okay. Arness was embarrassed of his role in The Thing his entire life oh. and did not attend the film's premiere. You don't need to be embarrassed about this stuff. The monster makeup in the movie was a constant source of frustration, as makeup artist Lee Greenway took 
five months to come up with a design that Hawks would actually approve. Fed up with the process, Hawks eventually told Greenway to just put a Frankenstein head on him. (laughs) Arness thought that he looked like a giant carrot and really just hated the whole process. And ultimately, Hawks had all of Arness's close-ups removed from the film because he believed that the makeup did not hold up to close scrutiny. Sure. That's why you don't show a thing, you know? Hawks tried to get U.S. Air Force assistance and cooperation for the film, but he was denied due to the fact that the top brass at the Air Force felt that cooperating with the movie would compromise the Air Force's official stance at the time that UFOs did not exist. The film was shot on the RKO sound stages and a little bit of outdoor shooting in Montana, North Dakota, and California using fake snow. The film's score is by Dimitri Tompkin, a highly renowned composer who received 17 Academy Award nominations in his career, winning four. Wow. Films Chomkin scored included Lost Horizon in 1937, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington in 1939, Shadow of a Doubt in 1943, It's a Wonderful Life in 1946, Duel in the Sun in 1946, Red River in 1948, Dead on Arrival, 1949, Strangers on a Train, 1951, High Noon, 1952, Dial M for Murder, 1954, The Old Man in the Sea, 1958, Rio Bravo, 1959, and The Guns of Navarone, 1961, among many, many others. The film's cinematographer, Russell Harlan, was a six-time Oscar nominee who shot Red River, Blackboard Jungle in 1955, Run Silent Run Deep in 1958, Rio Bravo, and To Kill a Mockingbird in 1962, among many others. This is what happens when you have an A-movie budget. You Mm -hmm. get really good people. Mm -hmm. The Thing from Another World was released by RKO on April 27th, 1951. It earned $1.95 million at the box office, beating out other sci-fi releases of that year like The Day the Earth Stood Still, a film which argued for reason and peaceful coexistence (laughs) instead of the thing's anti-science pro-military stance. Oh, two films on very different ends of the spectrum. The film also received positive reviews from critics and enthusiastic responses from audiences. It is considered one of the classic films of the 1950s, although... A faithful adaptation of Campbell's story would have to wait until 1982 and the John Carpenter remake, The Thing. Uh, The Thing from Another World is available on Blu-ray from Warner Archive and online through iTunes. As one last bit of trivia... Yes. The crew at the South Pole Telescope Station has a tradition of watching this movie uh, every winter and the 1982 remake on the first night after the last plane of the year leaves. <laughs> I, I, so I, I don't know about this movie. I have seen the 82 thing. Yeah, so have I. And I do feel like the, the 82, the thing, is very salient for our current time. Yes. <laughs> of like, who knows who has what illness. We're all very tired and no one trusts anyone. Exactly. But I, I have no idea about what to expect for this. I, I Maybe a mix of the 82 thing, or at least like the novella plot, mixed with Ice Station Zebra a little <laughs> bit. 
with the way that you have like methodical like hoxie and man and you know professional got the military in there you don't really know who's doing what mm -hmm. yeah I, I expect something like that plus there's lots of ice yeah <laughs> <laughs> we'll see what you think and what i think uh when we come back you're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss The Thing from Another World, from 1951, directed by Christian Nivey. See you on the other side, everybody. everyone to scream scene we just finished watching the thing from another world from 1951 directed by christian nyby i think we can say it's directed by christian nyby mm, is it though if you want to go into conspiracies as detailed in the earlier half of the show that's fine with me i will not adhere to them directed by probably christian nyby for the most part with Howard Hawks looking over his shoulder the entire time. Watching him like a hawk? Yes. Uh, but yeah, this movie's, uh, <laughs> this movie's dope as hell. Yeah, it's uh, really fun. Did you enjoy it, Sarah? I did. Um, I've never seen this movie before. Um, I have seen the 82 The Thing. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't really sure what to expect with the 1951 version. Um, it was a lot of fun. I really did enjoy it. Yeah. The 82 version is, like, very close to the novella. Yeah. Whereas, like, the 51 version, I mean, involves, like, a different kind of set of characters, but is pretty close for a while, and then, like, veers off. Yeah, it's, um, it's close with its premise. Yeah. It's like if the thing and Frankenstein had a baby. Mmm. A carrot baby. Why don't you... Explain that statement a bit more, Sarah. Well, I can do so after I give the plot summary. Mm -hmm. So the movie begins in Anchorage, Alaska, where we are at a U.S. military base. There is an outpost at the North Pole where there is a um, convention of scientists going on, and it reports back to this Anchorage site that there's some crashed aircraft, and they can't really identify what happened. It's all very mysterious. We learn this information alongside journalist Ned Scott, military captain Pat Hendry, uh, his navigator Mac, and his lieutenant Eddie. Mm -hmm. So they, these four guys get sent up to the North Pole outpost to see what the heck is going on. And they meet the lead scientist at this outpost, who is also a Nobel laureate uh, and was also at the bikini nuke tests. Uh, this is Dr. Carrington. While at the North Pole, Captain Pat connects, or rather reconnects, with Carrington's secretary, Nikki Nicholson, who is not an intrepid reporter, but um, his Carrington's secretary. His intrepid secretary. Exactly. Now, there is a large cast here. We have a team of scientists, including 
botanists, medical doctors, etc. And then um, we have a group of military men. So those are kind of the two groups we have going on here. Once uh, Pat and his team arrives at the North Pole, they do head to the crash site, and they realize it's a flying saucer. They try to use thermite, which is a type of bomb that melts ice, but should theoretically leave everything else intact in order to get the flying saucer out of the ice, but the bomb set off an engine explosion with the flying saucer, so everything's destroyed, but they do find a frozen body of an eight-foot-tall man. So they cut this guy in a big block of ice and head back to the North Pole outpost. A storm is rolling in as they arrive back at the outpost, and Dr. Carrington and Pat have a conflict on what to do. Carrington is like, let's uh, melt this dude and see what's up. And Pat's like, no, I need to wait for my orders. We will keep this guy on ice uh um, until I hear back. We're not to do anything with this frozen man. But it melts due to... Some shenanigans. Okay, I, I need to I need to go into this, because this is maybe the one stupidest part of this movie. The rest of this movie's great, but, like, so they bring this block of ice in. There's a dude in there. They know he's an alien, and they set up, like, a watch, right? Like, there's a guard and, like, a watch rotation, right? On the one hand, there's a pretty obvious conflict between Carrington and Pat, and... Like, at this point, I can kind of feel for Carrington because this is, like, an outpost at the North Pole that the U.S. military has, like, no jurisdiction over, but whatever. They're trying to keep the guy cold so that the ice doesn't just melt on its own, so they've got him in, like, a, like, basically the outpost's, like, shed, (laughs) and they've got, like, guards on him, and I guess as the ice is slowly melting, they can kind of see the guy inside, and it's super freaky. So one of the guards, like, takes a blanket an electric blanket that an earlier guard was using to keep warm and puts it on the ice block so he doesn't have to look at the creepy monster in the ice anymore. And that melts the ice. Enough for, like, this giant dude to get out of this big block of ice, but not enough to, like, short out the, like, electric blanket with, like, the amount of water that would generate. And the guy doesn't notice. No, not at all. Like, his back is turned. He's, like, doing a crossword puzzle. (laughs) He's, like, over here doing his weekly Sudoku and, like, not hearing the drips of water. Yeah, not hearing that, like, a a block of ice big enough for an eight-foot-tall dude has melted in the same room as him. Yeah. And that's a military man. Yeah. So, long story short, alien man gets loose. That's when the guard does turn around and he fires some shots at him uh, that seem to have no effect. Uh, He calls for help, a bunch of people storm in, but the creature has already left the storage closet and is attacking the sled dogs out in the snowstorm. During the battle with the dogs, the alien man loses an arm, and when that arm is analyzed... They find that he has, like, sappy blood and, like, spores in his palm. Turns out he's a plant-based life form. Yes. A giant carrot, as they say. From a planet where plants evolved into bipeds instead of primates. (laughs) So Carrington is convinced that the thing is more advanced because, as a plant, he would have no feelings. 
he is also more advanced because of the technology that he has, a flying saucer, um, more intelligent because he doesn't have to deal with feelings. Carrington would be a real big fan of Vulcans, I think. Yeah. Um, so he wants to try to communicate with the thing. So he takes the seed pod that they found in the hand um, and begins sprouting these seeds by feeding them... You know how people would, like, spray water? Yeah, he sprays, like, blood plasma that they had in, like, their medical kit for, you know, transfusions or whatever. Yeah, because they figure out with the severed hand that they have that if you feed it blood, it'll, like, start moving again and, like, reanimate. So it's he's a big, giant plant monster who feeds on blood. Yeah. Carrot vampire. Also, what leads them to discover that the thing feeds on blood is they discover a sled dog corpse in the greenhouse. Mm. So this is when Carrington uh, sets up some scientists to be guards um, to try to communicate with the creature when it returns. Um, And that goes poorly for those scientists. They die. Mm Mm-hmm. So there is a bit of a a cat and mouse game, um, both between the thing and the people in the building, um, but also between the military men and the scientists. They do discover that any time that the thing is getting close, the Geiger counter starts beeping um, because of residue from the alien technology it, I don't need to go into it. It's not. He's important. radioactive. He's radi- radioactive. Radioactive. So they can tell when the thing is coming close at night, and they decide to set the thing on fire with kerosene. Well, they're having trouble because you can't, like, shoot a tree to death. They're, like, at a loss for how to get this guy. And, like, and as- they're like, how do we defeat plants? And um, Nikki, the girl, is like, well, you can boil them, fry them, stick them in a stew. Um, and they're like, oh, okay, we'll set them on fire then. Yeah, they, they break <laughs> Everything up. burns, Ben. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I, the problem is that the thing's out in the cold, and as you said earlier, there's this storm that's come in. So they can only, like, search for them a little bit at a time. So it's this weird thing where, like, they need to draw the thing into the camp so they can actually attack it. But, you know, you don't want him so far into the camp that he's, you know, murdering you for blood. So he does come into kind of the dormitory area, and they do set him on fire. um, But it's mildly effective. Um, He is on fire, but uh, it just wasn't hot enough to really do some permanent damage. Now, after this, the thing really does show his intelligence by sabotaging the building's heat kind of trying to force the people inside to come out so he can pick them off one by one. Now, at this time, we do keep getting some orders from the general down in Anchorage telling Pat to keep the thing alive, don't hurt it, do these sorts of things. Recover its aircraft intact. <laughs> Use thermite bombs, that'll be fine, he says. Yeah. Um, but people are dying, namely those three scientists. So with a team of his military men... Pat rigs up an electrical flytrap. Mm-hmm. He gets everyone into the generator room, which is kind of at the end of like this long hall, so the thing has to come towards them to feed, um, and they set up metal mesh underneath these wooden plankways. So basically, you know, he steps on them, they flip the switch, he goes, bzzzt. <laughs> As the thing approaches, Carrington is like, 
we can't do this, we can't kill it, we have a duty to science and knowledge to try to make contact. And I'm sitting here going like, okay, I mean, sure, Star Trek rules. And he's like, we have a responsibility to die for it. And I'm like, mm, no, I don't think so, Carrington. Yeah, like, they know that this thing is going to feed on all of them. They've They've sort of ascertained by this point that, like, it doesn't really recognize us as, like fellow life forms like it sort of regards us the way we regard just like base food animals lettuce right but so so carrington's position is like right but we can't kill it because then we'll never learn the secrets of like interstellar travel or whatever so we should all die here and let it kill us so that future scientists might learn more information yeah which is like okay bud die for the economy they said (laughs) Now, Carrington is kind of pushed away. Everyone does recognize that this is kind of absurd, but he's so emphatic about these beliefs that he sabotages the generator right when they need to flip the switch to electrocute the thing. During that kind of commotion, um, Carrington runs out towards the thing to be like, speak with me, like, communicate. They want to kill you, but I want to talk. Like blah 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 and the thing just like looks at him and like smacks him away they get the generator back online just in time to electrocute the thing and he's like burned up he shrivels up real good mm-hmm. um we hear later how uh after that big climax that the whole greenhouse and the lab area where the thing sprouts they were all burned down just to be safe it's the only way to be sure Um, And there are reinforcements coming from Anchorage to help get these guys out of there. And the film ends with Scotty, the journalist, speaking over the radio, finally able to share his news story. And the film ends with him saying to the radio, keep watching the skies, be vigilant. The end. Yeah. So I started that plot summary with you asking the question, how is this like the 82 thing crossed with Frankenstein? I will tell you, audience, and Ben. Uh, So obviously we have the 82, the thing, and the novella providing the premise and kind of up to the point where the thing starts attacking people. But the creature itself is very much a Frankenstein's creature removed from the pathos you're supposed to feel for it. Just kind of this unstoppable brute coming in, you can't reason with him, he might be intelligent, he might not be, and he's just going to wreck your shit. Yeah, I think... And has a big forehead. Yes. <laughs> yeah, as we mentioned in the context setting, like, there's no close-ups of this guy at all, and it's because, you know... He does look a little dopey. Yeah, it, the makeup isn't... It's not a great creature design. So I would say that, unfortunately, the creature is the weakest part of this movie. Um, not necessarily the creature concept. Just um, the design. Yeah. It H- is... His size is really effective. Yeah, James Arness is like six foot six. Yeah. It does lose that paranoia element of the novella, which is like the big thing in the novella, because now he's not a shapeshifter. But I think that from a sci-fi perspective, the idea of, like, this humanoid plant monster that, like, reproduces asexually and, like, feeds on blood and, like, can reproduce very quickly and, like, regenerate and kind of be, like, an implacable threat that way is at least, like, as interesting. 
as the shapeshifter idea. Um, it's just that the creature makeup isn't great. Yeah. Um, he's just thorny plant Frankenstein. Yeah. And James Arness plays him like Frankenstein with the grunting and the moaning and the kind of like stiff walk, arms spread kind of form of attack. And the like bat people out of the way with your arm kind of uh, violence. Yeah, I think it could have been really interesting if he had gone for maybe a bit more of a fluid, vine-like gait. And it just doesn't fit with, like, they're sort of stuck between this rock and a hard place because the thing needs to be intelligent enough to, you know, have flown a goddamn spaceship here. Yes. And have built that spaceship and all of that. And smart enough that, like, he can do tactics and, like, cut the power and, like, do all this stuff. But he can't be something we can communicate with. Otherwise, Dr. Carrington is right. Right? So he still needs to just be a big, unstoppable monster. And they kind of try to justify that with, like, the idea that it just doesn't regard us as being, like, worth conversation. But the fact that, like, the thing walks through hallways going, kind of, like, undercuts the idea that it's intelligent. Yeah. I thought I would also just point out that the idea of a plant based monster that feeds on blood uh that that might ring some bells for anyone familiar with the novel the day of the triffids Mm, sure that That hasn't come out yet though right no uh it does come out this year 1951 but in december okay yeah which is also not quick enough that john windham is ripping off the thing right books take a long time to make yeah i think what helps offset the fact that the monster is kind of bad is that all the sequences involving the monster are fucking great yes like the initial reveal where he sneaks up behind that guy and he like freaks the fuck out the fight with the snow dogs like where he's just straight murdering dogs out there in the snow yeah like this movie's hella violent we we see a guy on fire Oh, yeah, when they light the thing on fire, like, he's on fire. In fact, um, this movie's the, as far as I know, it's the first full-body burning stuntman in a Hollywood movie. Yeah, brave man. Yeah, um, yeah, he he kills some dogs. Uh, There's, you know, the thing where they find it in the greenhouse where they they open the door, and he's, like, right the fuck there, and they, like, try to close the door on him and stuff. Yeah, that's the first time that you see the thing in actual light Mm -hmm. um and it was like shocking because it's like oh shit he's behind the door slam it shut um and that helped with like if you had a slow reveal of like carrot head yeah it wouldn't work in the same way no you need a bit of a shock so you don't notice the dopiness as much yeah yeah and like the movie does a great job of making the monster's appearances scary and shocking and, like, jump scary. And, you know, the scene where they light it on fire is, like, a really cool scene because, like, the lights go out in the room and, like, he's on fire and he's running around attacking people and lighting the whole room on fire. And then, like, the final scene where they electrocute him is really cool. Like, all the scenes that the monster's in are really cool, which helps the fact that the monster's kind of dumb. Yeah. Now, you mentioned that um, he he kills dogs. Mm Mm-hmm. He kills two scientists mm-hmm. and injures one other, and Carrington at the end is actually only injured. He doesn't show up again, but there's dialogue of like, yeah, only his like arm is broken or whatever. Um, so I feel like 
not enough people die, especially for such a large cast. Yeah, there's a lot of characters in this movie. Um, they're not all important, but they're all there. And yeah, you really think that like when they come in here and it's like, oh yeah, there's like eight military dudes and like eight science people and like there's like 30 people here at this outpost that like, you know, we're going to kill a bunch of them. Uh, so I, I agree with you that not enough of them, not enough of them die, especially after like the first batch in the greenhouse, like where it's like, oh, okay, he's a threat. It's like you need to, to keep killing people in every attack to like keep up the the threat level, you know? Exactly. But it is a pretty like openly violent movie. Yes. Not much death, but definitely a lot of violence. Yeah, and like we see blood, we see, you know, that kind of thing. I think the reason why there's still a large cast, even though it's not serving the typical horror movie purpose of people to die. And it's also not serving the novella purpose of like, oh, you never know who the thing might be. Yeah. I think in the case of this adaptation, um, it shows you a lot of teamwork. There's a lot Mm -hmm. of dialogue in this movie, and there's a lot of teamwork, whether that's just within the military men, just within the scientists, but also when the scientists and military men are working together. Yeah, it's that very Hoxian thing of, like, these guys are all innate professionals, all Mm -hmm. working together, and the thing with having so many characters also means that you can have multiple flavors of military man and scientist. Like, the captains, you know the stock military man character and Dr. Carrington's like the stock mad scientist character, but it's not such a black and white conflict because you can have a bunch of other military men and scientists showing you other versions. Yeah. Um, Now, because they are working together and except for Carrington, they are working together very effectively. Mm -hmm. They never really felt all that out of their own depth. Unless they were taken by surprise, like when the thing is right behind the door. Well, yeah, because they're all, like, good at what they do. Yeah, but I mean, like, even the surprise is countered because of the Geiger counter. Right. It's still the fact that they're up against, like, they're up against a threat that you can't defeat by shooting it. Yeah. Which puts the military men, like, out of sorts for a while, and you need to get the scientists to come over to the side of, like, hey, we need to destroy this thing instead of study it. Um, And even then, like, you have Carrington working from within to, like, sabotage those efforts. Mm -hmm. You have the fact that some of the scientists are on Carrington's side in terms of the, like, hey, let's grow more of these to study them versus, like, some are more on the military side. So there's enough, like, internal conflict in the group that, like, victory isn't, like, assured. uh, And the monster still remains threatening the entire way through. I think it would be easy to hand wave the conflict between Pat and Carrington as like military good, science bad. Yeah, that's certainly the like first reading of it. But I don't think that's quite what's going on. Um, obviously, there's some disillusionment going on with the idea of science and progress, especially because Carrington is explicitly a Nobel laureate and a lead scientist from the bikini nuke tests. Yeah, and there's also just, like, Carrington has a lot of character elements that are just clearly designed to tell you he's the bad guy. Yeah, he has a Satan goatee. He has a Satan goatee. He ha- he wears, like, 
fucking like smoking jackets up here at like the North Pole. He has a I very mean, if there's like there's any time to wear a smoking jacket. Yeah. It's like when you're at the North Pole. He has a very like erudite, urbane kind of manner instead of like the like macho tough guy kind of thing. He has a British accent. Yes. He <laughs> um also like when everyone puts on their cold weather gear, um he's got like a fur coat and a big fur hat. Like he looks like Satan, yes. He also looks like Lennon. Like, exactly like yeah. Lennon. So there's a lot of stuff, like, being done to, like, you know, nudge you that, like, oh, this guy's the bad guy before he even starts to kind of turn that way. Yeah, but I think the fact that the film emphasizes everyone's professionalism mm-hmm. to the point where they're, like, underlining almost attempts at realism. Like, when they show up to the crash site, um, there's dialogue of uh, people saying, like, oh, this is, it must have been at this velocity when it crashed or whatever, where it's simulating how scientists would actually analyze a site. Mm -hmm. Um, And you see this kind of professionalism among the military people as well with, like, the teamwork going on um, and sharing of ideas. If always... It seemed very reminiscent to me of what you see for military operations in movies like The Big Red One or even Ice Station Zebra. Yeah. You know, you see a bit of, like, the human side of the soldiers, but it's still, like, professionalism and emphasis on protocol um, and that being almost a saving grace in a crisis situation. And you see, like, the ingenuity that comes out of these types of professional relationships um, and the bridging of science and military, um, because that's how they come up with the idea to electrocute him. Yeah, um, it's it's not just the military guys. It's it's really, like, they have to build that system with the help of, like, there's a, a civilian electrical engineer who's one of the scientists, and, like, he's the one working with them. And, like, the whole idea of, like, using heat against the monster is, like, Nikki's idea, and she's with the scientists and is a civilian. So the the science versus military theme it's a really clear theme in the movie, but it's a little more ideologically complex than you might think at first glance. Yeah. Um, but if we can put a pin in that for a moment, because you've also brought up something I really liked about this movie. What's that? Uh, and that is the fact that, like, there's this extreme devotion to verisimilitude here. Yeah. Um, it's sort of as if they, like, recognized that, you know, they're working uphill... Not only because, you know, okay, it's a flying saucer, and it's an alien, and it's a alien who's an eight-foot-tall bipedal vegetable man, and, you know, he looks like Frankenstein with claws. Um, <laughs> so they know they're kind of working uphill with that, so there was this, like, conscious decision to make everything around that feel as believable as possible. Yeah. And it's all within the context of this Hoxian man character where all the characters have, like, a baseline competence and intelligence. Like, even um, the reporter, Scott, he's kind of a comic relief character, but it's clear that he's good at what he does. Like, there's even a line where, you know, he's there at the the end, and there's, like, a running joke through the movie where he keeps trying to get a picture of the alien, and, like, it just doesn't happen for him. And so he's kind of a comic character, and he's also kind of a Greek chorus character who can comment on things from, like, outside the, like, science military Mm -hmm dichotomy but and he also asks questions that help us as the audience follow along right and understand what's happening right but like there's never a sense that he's not a professional either even though he's kind of the comedy like towards the end of the movie you know when they're gonna do the final battle with the thing 
uh, you know, Captain Hendry's like, all right, Scotty, like, you got to get out of here. This isn't a place for you. Like, you don't belong here. And he's like, yeah, I didn't belong at Normandy either, but, like, I was there, you know, or whatever, right? Yeah. So, like, like, he has this backstory as being, like, this wartime journalist, right? All of the characters act in ways that feel logical and natural for those characters. Even Carrington, who's a little bit over the top, like, starts out pretty reasonable and has, like, an arc where he gets a little more obsessive over the course of the movie. And they also try to explain that with, like, he's not sleeping, but all he's under in a, a lot very of pressure. stressful yes. situation. Because the camp is, you know, if you've seen the 82 thing, it's very much the same kind of building. Um, but it's all inside. It's one building with a bunch of, like, cramped hallways going between different rooms. Um, so they're all, like, trapped inside with the storm and with the monster. Um, all very claustrophobic. Yeah. Technical, scientific, and operational details when they're making plans or analyzing things are said very matter-of-factly. They're also said quickly, and they're said straightforwardly, like the way these people would actually talk to one another. And that establishes the characters like competency, but it also grounds the parts of the story that are ridiculous so that they don't feel so absurd. Yeah. And there's also, like, no, you know... Yes, they explain things to Scott when he asks, but he's asking, like, very intelligent questions. There isn't, like, any dopey audience identification, dumb it down, like, say that again in English, prof, kind of stuff. Or any, like, Star Trekian, like, oh, it's like hitting a melon with a jackhammer kind of, like, explanations. <laughs> All of the technical details or like operational plans or analysis are all just said with the words you would use uh, you know what i mean like yeah um, totally and even like scott who they're explaining things to he only needs occasional things explained because he's been around the armed forces before and even though like there's two women in the camp and they're both professionals there's nobody is somebody's girlfriend right like nikki and pat have an emotional relationship but she's not there because he's her fiance, right? Yeah. Like she's Carrington's secretary, and that means she has to be intelligent enough to like understand the work that he's doing. And then the other woman in the camp is their doctor, right? Yeah. And and none of the women are like put in a damsel type of situation. No, no not at all. Like I guess you could argue that like everyone's kind of put in a yes, damsel but situation, but no one's the monster, like. Ah! There's a moment when like it's in the scene where they set the monster on fire. And he comes into their, like, dorm room or whatever, and he's busted in, and it's before they've actually gotten him on fire, and, like, Nikki's up against the wall screaming, and there isn't a moment where the monster then picks her up in his arms and takes her off somewhere for no fucking reason, right? Yeah, like, yeah. The women are as smart as everyone else. Basically, I guess what I'm trying to say that I liked about this movie is the characters are depicted as being adults. Yes. And the audience are treated as adults as well. There's none of this, like oh, we have to explain, like, what electricity is because we're assuming audiences don't like to be intelligent or whatever, you know? Yeah. You don't need to understand, like, physics to watch this movie, um, but you just it, appreciate it, it. It trusts you to know, like, there's nothing crazy in this movie, but, like, it trusts you to understand basic technical terms that you would have learned in, like, high school. Uh, I think the music... <laughs> Heckin' great uh, theremin galore, yeah, um, but not overused.
movie is probably why Theremin becomes so associated with sci-fi. Yes, I would think so. And especially, like, space-related sci-fi. Mm-hmm. I think the acting is really great. Yeah, I think the use of, like, character actors in all the roles, like, basically typecast actors who are playing to type, uh, it helps all of the characters feel natural and means that they aren't distracting by having, like, big stars intermingling in the cast. Like, you're not like, oh, well, he's not going to die. He's Gary Cooper or whatever. You know what I mean? Like, it, and because there's such an emphasis being put on making everything believable so that we swallow the carrot monster, having it just be like these character actor types helps them all feel like, like the military dudes, the scientist dudes, they don't feel like actors. They feel like real military dudes or scientist dudes um, because we aren't going like, oh shit, you know, it's, it's uh, Vivian Lee as, as Nikki or whatever, right? Like, <laughs> how'd they get her? It's an A movie. The only person who kind of stands out is like, oh, well, that's a character and an actor is uh, Robert Cornthwaite as Dr. Carrington because, like, he's got, like, fake white hair and, like, a fake beard and, like, an eccentric wardrobe. Like, so he's the one person who does stand out that way. But the rest of the cast is, like, very natural feeling. And he's standing out on purpose. Like, they're mm -hmm. doing that on purpose. Yes, exactly. I also thought this was shot well. And I thought it was interesting how... It's not stylized. No. Like how you see German Expressionism or film noir or any of the 40s horror movies. Mm -hmm. It's like shot, I'll say normally, but then when the thing is about to attack, they turn off the lights to help attack him, but also it makes him look spooky. Yeah, there's the, the, the movie is shot invisibly. Like the style is invisible. So that, again, it's helping with that verisimilitude stuff by not drawing you out of the movie or drawing attention to the fact that, like, this is a movie. Yeah. Um, it's not like, you know, modern day 2020, like, cinema verite, like, oh, the camera's... Shaky camera. Yeah. Uh, but, like, it's just, it's just traditional Hollywood shooting style, which is designed to be unnoticeable. And then, yeah, like when the lights go spooky, there's always, like, a convenient in-story reason. Yeah, there's a reason for him to be backlit in yes. the doorway yes. as he approaches, and then the fire goes everywhere. It's yeah. it's really well done. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, like, what makes this movie work is it has a really taut script, it has really deft characterizations, and very well-executed set pieces. Um, I also think it's too bad that Margaret Sheridan's career didn't take off because she's really good here as Nikki. She's definitely playing that Hoxian woman. Part of the Hoxian woman thing is like having like a nickname that you're addressed as instead of like, you know, Miss Nicholson or whatever. She's Nikki and she's treated as one of the boys, right? She can just hang out with the guys and it's totally fine. Um, she's a very strong character. However, I will say... It is still a movie from 1951, so she is still a secretary, and she does still deliver coffee, like walk into scenes, and her motivation to walk into the scene is to be like, hey, does anyone need any coffee? Um, and just take notes. Yeah. yeah, but she is crucial to the plot in that, you know, she's the one who comes up with how to defeat the monster, but also she's the one who tells Pat that, oh yeah, Dr. Carrington's also like growing like a fucking nursery of these things over here, mm -hmm. right? So... She's a very crucial character, and I really enjoyed her character, and it kind of sucks that her career didn't go anywhere. Hawks blamed that on, like, oh, well, she had kids, and it 
ruined her or something. Which I is like, know. thanks, Joss Whedon. No. Yeah. Um, but I think the real reason is that the Hoxian woman character kind of fell out of favor in the 1950s in favor of, like, less aggressive or assertive female characters and in favor of more, like, passive-submissive women who were domestic instead of driven. Like, this is the era when Lois Lane stops looking for news stories and starts trying to come up with schemes to trick Superman into marrying her, right? Yeah, and it's, I think, because... Not that I'm saying that there was a big conspiracy, but with all the men returning from the war, we really need to emphasize, like, no, men work, women don't have to work. Yeah, so we need... you don't need to be assertive, so go back into the home, be passive. Yeah, we have a huge workforce coming back. We need them to have jobs. So we need to get women out of the jobs they assumed in the war, which means we need to promote the idea of women going and being in the home and being mothers and being homemakers so that that economic gap exists for these returning soldiers, right? Which, I mean, being a mom, being a caretaker, those are valuable jobs. Yes. And that's great. But it shouldn't be someone's only vocation. Sure. There's a lot of talk about the Cold War themes in this movie whenever you, like, do any reading on it. Um, I think they're there, but I don't think they're as prominent as the military versus science themes. Like, the science skepticism and the idea of, like, doing what's practical and saving human lives versus knowledge for knowledge's sake felt like a much more prominent theme than any Cold War stuff. Yes, but the film does end with vigilance. (laughs) Yes. Like, strength and protocol and professionalism is great, and our ingenuity will save us. We will persevere, but until then, look to the skies and be aware. Yeah, fund NORAD. It misses the paranoia of the novella, which would have felt right at home in the early 1950s era of the Cold War. Yeah. Um, but like, you know, the setting's been moved from a scientific post at the South Pole to the North Pole because then, you know, A, Hawks can get like the Air Force involved, which like he's big into, but also like, okay, well, if the military are involved, that's automatically going to put your mind in the Cold War mindset. But then also like the thing about the North Pole is like, that's right in the line of fire, of the Cold War, right? Like, the shortest route between the U.S. and the Soviet Union for bomber planes and then later on intercontinental ballistic missiles is over the Arctic. You don't shoot them across the ocean (laughs) east-west, right? You shoot them north-south to Mm -hmm. each other over the Arctic and or Canada. Carrington looks like Lenin, but he also represents that, like, tendency of Western intellectuals at this period to have sort of naive pro-Soviet leanings where, you know, you saw a lot of instances of, like, Western scientists or philosophers or artists or writers who were like, oh, yeah, like, communism, like, that's totally the way to go. And, like, the Soviet Union knows exactly what it's doing. And, like, I don't know if we covered this so much in the context setting, but, like, one of the things about the whole Iron Curtain metaphor was, like, information did not get in or out of the Soviet bloc and the, like, Western bloc to each other unless it was information they wanted the other side to have, right? So what there's a lot of stories of is, like, Western intellectuals who um, defected to the glorious paradise 
of the Soviet Union, only to realize that actually everything over there was terrible. And that's sort of reflected in Carrington here, who's just, like, convinced that, like, science and diplomacy and, like, knowledge are going to save the day. But no, the bat, no, no, the thing gonna kill you. Thing gonna kill you. Yeah, I think that's also why I appreciated that there were so many scientists. Because as you said, we could see different degrees of science going on. Mm-hmm. Um, There's good scientists and bad scientists. Just like there are good and bad military men. Yeah, and, you know, the day is ultimately saved by them cooperating. Mm-hmm. Um, and another interesting thing for, like, the ideology of this movie, because I think it's very easy to label this movie as kind of like a right-wing kind of movie. Yeah is the reporter, Scotty, is portrayed as a sympathetic character. As you said earlier, he's kind of our audience identification figure. Even though he is constantly complaining about the U.S. Air Force's gag order on him, where for the entire movie, like it's like, oh my god, a flying saucer, I need to file a story. Nope, you can't, it's secret, we're not letting it out. Oh, oh my god, an alien, let me file a story. Nope, not until I get orders from the brass saying that you can... You know, oh shit, we're under attack. I really need to fire a story. Nope, not not right now. Like, he's constantly complaining about the fact that he can't get the word out, even going so far as to suggest that the military is stepping on his constitutional rights. Yeah. And like, I and think... And it's not it's, said as a joke. No, and I think also it's easy to forget here in 2020 where like, that idea is, well, of course they are. Like, of course the military is stepping on your constitutional rights, right? But this is 1951. Vietnam hasn't happened yet. The Korean War hasn't happened. We just won World War II. We're the good guys. The military saved the world. uh, And they are here to defend our constitutional rights. That's their job. So to have a character who's suggesting, like, hey, the military is doing a cover-up. And, like, that's bad. And, like, you can't gag the press and all this stuff. That's a little bit more ideologically complex for a movie that, like, is a, you know, anti-Soviet, pro-military kind of seeming movie, then I think people give the 1950s credit for. Yeah. I think people look back on the 50s as being, like, a very black and white time. Well, I mean, the movie was black and white, Ben. Yes. But, like, <laughs> you know, we can see even here with, like, a guy like Howard Hawks, who was, like, very pro-military, an awareness of, like... Right, but, like, they shouldn't be the guys solely in charge of everything, you know? Yeah. The sort of irony of the science versus military theme is that, like, the primary reason in the 1950s people were skeptical of science and, like, had fear of science is the atomic bomb, right? Which is, like, who funded the bomb? Yes. The military. Yes. Uh, Well, the government, but... Military. Yes, and also, like, the only time nuclear weapons have ever been used, it was by the U.S. military, right? So, unfortunately, Carrington becomes such a caricature by the end of the movie that, like, his use as a cautionary tale about godless science kind of falls short because it just seems like he's a little bit ridiculous. He's a little bit of a straw man. Yeah. And this idea that we need to be afraid of the godless scientists because what hath science wrought and we need to put our trust into the military, the guys who dropped the bombs, it's a little bit, it's not as effective as the movie should be or wants to be. That is quite a complex thing to go into for a science fiction horror movie that is, like, an hour and a half, though. Sure, but they're... Like, they cover a lot of ground, but I feel like that's almost 
next level. Yeah, but they are, like, intentionally invoking these things, right? Like, you're not supposed to like Carrington because he was at the atomic tests, you know? And so we're supposed to like these army dudes instead. Yeah. Like, it's there. It's right there. For sure. For sure. Just to give the movie a few more bits of compliments. Because I, <laughs> I, you know, the makeup's bad. The monster's bad. But I think that's the only bad thing about it. Yes. Like, okay, the sets are great. Like, the interior of the camp is, like, really convincingly believable. Yeah, it doesn't just feel like a room. It doesn't... Maybe it's because we were not seeing the same mansion over and over <laughs> again. But the the complex felt large enough to be considered a complex where those mansions never felt large enough to be a mansion. But yet it's still small enough to feel claustrophobic. Yes. Because the key thing here is like this movie kind of invents the like claustrophobic trapped in hallways with a monster in like an inhospitable environment genre, right? Like you don't get alien without this. Yeah, I think that's true. You know, we had these haunted house movies before where we were trapped with whatever in a house, but they never really tapped into that feeling of being trapped in the house with the thing because it was always so hung up on doing, like, uh, country mansion, like, mystery suspect running around nonsense, right? And there's secret passages that you discover so the place seems larger than you first expected. Yeah, exactly. That's just the interiors. The exteriors are also very convincing, given that they didn't go to Alaska and all that snow is fake. And that big, like, horizon line of ice, as far as the eye can see, is a fucking backdrop painting. Like, it's, it's pretty really, well done. It's really convincing. Yeah. Like, you totally buy into the idea that they're there at the North Pole. It never really feels like a Star Trek planet, where it's all very fake. Yeah. I really like this movie. Yeah, I think it's very good, and I think... It gets a bum rap because it's not very close to the novella and the Carpenter version is and, like, is also, like, a very good movie. Um, And I think that retroactively has kind of, like, sort of cast a shadow on this version. Especially, like, if you haven't seen it and you hear, like, oh, yeah, it's like the thing, but they replaced it, all the shape-shifting stuff with, you know, he's a big carrot monster like that's pretty easy to see why you would look at that and be like oh okay so it sucks then is what you mean (laughs) but like definitely go check it out if you haven't seen it i think it is just as like valid i think the best attitude to go in with it is to understand that it's a different thing (laughs) the thing yeah let's move on to ranking for sure so where are you looking for the thing from another world I do really like this movie, but I think we've identified the things that keep this movie from being, like, top 10, top 20 material. Interesting. Uh-oh. <laughs> um, Why don't, well, well what, what, like, what are those things? The creature design. Right. Obviously, there's survivors at the end of this, but it's not, like, bleak. Like, yeah. end of 82, the thing. Yeah. Like, three, not, two people die. Two, two people, people die. Two people die, one guy gets ho- seriously injured, yeah. And one, two, two people get seriously injured. Oh, yes, injured. two people get seriously injured. And Carrington is He'll injured. Be He'll yeah. be fine. Yeah. So, so, that's why, like, to me, like, there there could have been more death. There is a lot of violence, but there could have been more death. Um, I do think that, like, the terror 
of like being trapped with this thing outside is done really well. I think the scenes where the creature, if there's something I can give this movie credit for on top of everything else, I guess that I already have, it's that like when the monster attacks, it's scary in a way that like fucking universal monsters haven't been for years at this point. Absolutely. But you're right. The like ingenuity of the ending where they like, we all come together to figure out how to beat this thing does sort of give it a different feel than if it like had killed everyone and then like died. And then like, we were just trapped up here at the North pole waiting for someone to come get us or something, you know? Yeah. Like I said earlier, because of their professionalism and ingenuity, they never really fully feel out of their depth. Like they'll be like, Oh shit, that didn't work. And then Barnes will be like, have you tried this captain? Yeah. As you said, the thing is threatening more than any of the creatures. Or monsters have been in the Universal. So my floor is 45. Frankenstein meets the Wolfman. I will not put it below that. Yeah, I wouldn't either. Well, I'm just saying. <laughs> and then working my way up, I couldn't get past things like the Seventh Victim, the Uninvited, even the Queen of Spades. This is all in around number 30. Mm. Um, because those movies are bleak. I ended up putting my ceiling right in around 34, The Man Who Changed His Mind, which was another kind of fun science fiction-y inspired story of, like, brain transplants. I think The Thing From Another World can go above that. Um, I could even be talked into going a little bit higher, but that was kind of my range, 34 to 45. Okay, I'm looking higher than you, but I'm not looking in the top ten. Okay. I I totally get all of what you're saying for why it should be a little lower, but the thing I noticed watching this was how much you yelped and, like, jumped and reacted during this movie. Whereas, like, a lot of these older films, you know, we appreciate them intellectually, (laughs) or they maybe, like, give us a little shudder, like, ooh, you know? But, like, you were full-on, like, like... As the shadow of the thing is, like, approaching the guy when he's not looking, you were full-on, like, grasping my hand, being like, Ah! Ah! Ben, he's gonna get the guy! Ah! I I was really enjoying the movie. Yes. um, Because not only is it, like, a bit of a new thing with the science fiction It just feels fucking different than the last ten years' worth of movies. Yeah, and so it put all of the for lack of a better word, traditional horror tropes in new light. Mm -hmm. So it was refreshing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's something to be said for the fact that it got a visceral reaction from you. And the other thing is it's just a very well-made movie. And sometimes there's a push-pull on the list because it's a, a list of the best horror movies of all time, right? And sometimes that's about what's better horror and sometimes that's about what's better movie. You know? Yeah. It's a, it's a sort of double-edged sword. So I started out by looking around where we have the Frankenstein movies. Sure. Just basically because the monster is a Frankenstein type, right? Son of Frankenstein is our highest ranked Frankenstein movie at 12. Below that's The Body Snatcher. And then we have Frankenstein, Bride of Frankenstein, Dracula. So below Dracula is Murders in the Zoo, which has some, like, some shit in it but also has, like, a lot of really tiresome-ass fucking comic relief. There isn't really comic relief in The Thing from Another World. Like, the comic relief is that all the characters are, like, fast-talking, witty, banter-type people, not so much, like, 
slapsticky, like golly gee, like garsh scoob, I'm so scary kind of people. Now you say that, but Scotty has a catchphrase, which is holy, holy cats! cats, which is uh, amazing. I'm going to be adopting that into my regular conversations. So I was looking above Murders in the Zoo, mm-hmm. and then making my way up from there, I think that the thing in this movie is scarier than Frankenstein's monster kind of ever was. But, as you pointed out, he doesn't have the pathos. There's nothing really to the thing. Everything deeper than surface level about the thing is stuff other characters kind of have to tell us, but isn't really like evident in the creature himself. So, you know, I wasn't quite sure if this should go above or below these Frankenstein movies. But Son of Frankenstein, you know, it just has that good, good expressionism. <laughs> so my range was 12 to 16. I'm not feeling super strongly about where it goes in there, other than I think maybe it's better than the original Frankenstein. But honestly, like, that's where I, I was thinking, like, anywhere in here feels right. Okay. Now... That's a lot higher. Yes. Looking... But if we look at the middle point, mm-hmm. it's right in around the Walking Dead, Mad Love, uh, kind of mid-twenties area. Yeah. Looking right above your ceiling, like, The Leopard Man isn't the best Jacques Tourneur Val Luton movie. Dead of Night has that fucking golf segment. Um, but yeah, the movies in here in the 20s like are, like, legit fucking good movies. Um, so what are you, what do you think about, like, the movies in the mid-twenties here? Well, right above The Walking Dead is Mad Love, which is really good and really expressionist, but has issues with adapting... Hands of Orlack. Hands of Orlack. Yeah, because um, it adds a whole other level of complexity onto an already needlessly complex plot. <laughs> yeah, and has the love triangle thing. So I'd be willing to consider Above Mad Love. Karuta Ichipeji was a page of madness, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. It's creepy, but it's also kind of like a chopped up weirdo art movie. (laughs) Like, like it's, it's, it's creepy, but it's also like, um, okay, what was going on? I think... Right above there, you have stuff like Nosferatu and Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, and the strength of those two movies is, like, icon value, right? Like, yeah. it's, it's that, like, Count Orlac on the ship is, like, such an iconic image, right? What's striking you here? I will say that I will not put the thing from another world above the Wolfman. Hmm. Why is that? Well, I know you don't like the Wolfman's design. He looks too much like a boar. Um, and we agree that the character design of the thing... Is also bad. Is also bad. They both have, like, a wear a black button-up shirt and black trousers kind of, like, fashion sense. And will just do up your face. Yeah. I think the Wolfman, because it's starting from scratch, mm. it, it shows a lot of ingenuity on that end. In terms of, like, story and, like, horror and, like, characters and stuff, like, what do you think about Wolfman versus this? I like the horror of the Wolfman more than the horror of the 51 thing because the fear is, like, a bit of that Jekyll and Hyde, but also that, like, you can't control it. Um, The guilt that comes from that. Poor Larry Talbot. Like, just the 
just drench me in pathos. Yeah. You know? Whereas the thing, you don't have that, and you feel very secure. Like, we'll figure this out. We can do this. Yeah, we, we have to keep watching the skies, uh, but, like, so long as, you know, our military and our civilians are, like, in sort of, like, lockstep with one another, uh, we're gonna be fine. Yeah. You know? Um, yeah, okay. I think I'm cool with this idea. Above the return of the vampire and below the wolfman. Okay, I'm willing to go for that. So coming in at the new number 20 on the list is The Thing from Another World from 1951, directed by Christian Nyby. And a little bit of Howard Hawks in there, too. <laughs> if you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can find links to the other episodes we've mentioned today, as well as our appeals box. If you would like to contest this or any other ranking, you can submit an appeal through our Ask box on Tumblr. You can email us directly at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com. Or you can rant at us, or with us, on Twitter at underscore ScreamScene. ScreamScene updates every Wednesday on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify. Subscribe to the show through our RSS feed to listen to us on the podcast app of your choice. And if you can, leave a rating or a review for the show on your app. Uh, it really helps the show out, and we just like seeing how much you guys like the show. Uh, you can also help us out by telling a friend about us. We're all trapped inside until the situation improves. If someone you know needs something to listen to while they're doing the dishes for the third time that day somehow, tell them about Scream Scene. And, you know, it also has the added benefit of introducing you to new movies to also spend your time watching. <laughs> or you can head over to patreon.com slash Podcast where you can become a patron of the show for as little as a dollar a month. Uh, obviously, like, a lot of people are experiencing a lot of hard times. Uh, I believe the unemployment rate in the U.S. just exceeded the Great Depression today. Um, so, you know, if you're already a patron and you need to, like, lower down what level you're at, or if you're not a patron yet, but, like, you just can't afford to right now, that's totally understandable. Um, but those of you who are able to contribute and join on, we really, really appreciate that. So that's patreon.com slash podcast. What are we watching next week, Ben? Well, next week, Sarah, it's written and directed by Kurt Siedmack. Oh, dope. Uh, I think this is the first time he's directed on the show. Yeah. It's starring Lon Chaney Jr. and Perry Mason himself, oh my God. Raymond Burr. Perry Mason. It is an independent movie, and it is called Bride of the Gorilla. Oh, Ben, you set me up, and now I'm just disappointed. <laughs> well, low expectations means that you can always be pleasantly surprised. Sure. Well, we will see you next week, Creatures of the Night. Bye. Bye. Bye.